0: dog is in the room, so if there's any barking, then it's probably the dog.
1: Now the Mongol Khanate was number one, the <laughs> other empires ate, were already done when this bad boy sat on the Eurasian staircase. Should I say
0: that we're four
2: students from the UK? Or it's that... pretty obvious, my dude.
3: Yeah.
2: yeah, we've all got English accents you're We, have, we so have English time. Right. You have English time. Three students from the UK and one we're not really sure. <laughs> no.
0: Hello and welcome to the Poorly Informed podcast. I'm episode host Theo and it's great that you're listening in. As well as me, your regular hosts uh, are here today, Peter, Will and Max. And they're all going to be taking turns hosting episodes, hopefully each week, so that you'll get to know us all and maybe pick your favourites. But we wanted this podcast. To be a space for the four of us to chat about the world. We all have very different interests, very different influences, which means not gonna be enforcing one sort of view on you. This is a place for open, lively debate. What content are we gonna look at? Well, we're gonna cover all sorts of subjects. Things like things like politics, history, geography, mass extinction, hypothetical questions, space exploration, Hitler, all sorts of stuff. That's like a controversial question that you don't want to say in polite conversation. We're going to be doing that. All those weird problems you have with religion, again, we're going to be doing that. Topics ranging from Americanisation, immortality, the UN, we are going to be covering all of them on this podcast. That said, we don't know everything. In the heated debate, we're going to improvise, we're going to forget, missay, misunderstand stuff. That's why we're called poorly informed. We don't understand so that you don't have to. Yeah, maybe we'll get things wrong occasionally, but our commitment to you is that the spirit of this podcast will always be true and sincere and motivated by an honest desire to learn more and insult Max. But it's great to finally be recording, it's great to finally be here, so let's get going. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, there'll be details at the end of the podcast, so stay tuned. Today's topic, a classic, greatest empires throughout history. So today we're going to be looking at which national empire has been the most powerful throughout history. We
2: all brought different suggestions to the table. Will, which empire are you doing? I'm doing the Romans because they are the empire that has almost preceded all empires. So an oldie but a goodie. Yes, absolutely. And they are such an interesting one to look at because they just lasted for so long and they were so powerful. So definitely my favourite.
1: Sweet. Peter... You have gone again for a classic, I was kind of. I went for the Mongol Empire primarily because like Will had already
3: got the Roman Empire, so I, thought, uh, <laughs> I had
1: to go for something else.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, I've gone for the nice boring uh, option of the rich Empire. That is quite boring, man. Yeah. What can I say?
0: Theo, what empire have you got? I am going for I'm going for the Kerbal. I'm gonna argue that Venice, the Venetian Republic, was an empire. Um, I'm not sure how this is gonna play out. But it's going to be interesting. We have all got an empire. We are prepared to argue over our empire. But, Will, you've gone it's quite a cliche one, the Roman Empire. It comes up quite a lot. Our oh, biggest empire, greatest empire in history. You get, why have you well, chosen the Romans?
2: Well, you almost said it there yourself. It is one of the biggest and greatest empires in history. Um, it lasted for one and a half to two thousand years, depending on how you count it. There was a period of peace in the Roman Empire which lasted for 200 years, which in ancient times was unusual and, I believe, remarkable and something that few other powers could have managed. And because of its such a unique um, sort of staying power and stability, as it were, in the ancient world, I think that's what sets it apart from everything else. It could last that long with a certain set of um, like the way the state apparatus were set up sort of remained reasonably similar most of the time and there was while there was violent change it didn't tear the empire apart up until the very
0: end I, I, you mentioned the Pax romana the 200 years of peace and i think that's fair enough but given the fact wasn't this more inevitable rather than the roman strategic planning because they simply invaded all of the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Basin, they'd invaded Britannia, they'd gone into Asia Minor, there was simply no one left to cause trouble, so it's just not more natural cause of, you've taken all the land, well of course who's going to cause trouble.
2: Well yeah, but that's what makes them so powerful, because they could take over everyone. No other Mediterranean power had managed that to that point, they were all a bit more localised, and the Roman, first the Republic, then the Empire, was the first Empire that managed to kind of, spread and stay. Um, Peter, you've definitely got you to you uh, cut in here.
1: Yes, so you talked about Pax Romana, that was what, 206 years according to the notes I made on this subject. You also mentioned in your little... cheating, he's prepared for this. <laughs> that Rome lasted for 2,000 years. So this is 206 out of 2,000 years. I can do some quick maths here. That's 10% of the time. This doesn't seem particularly impressive if you think about... The, the empire was only really successful, like it only could successfully enforce peace within its borders and within the surrounding area for 10% of its existence. For the other 1,800
2: years, what was it doing? That's a good point, that's a very good point. Well, just because it didn't have absolute peace, it doesn't mean it was in crises all the time. Like, you take the third century crisis, that was where the empire was kind of in a really rough state. Right. However, it was managed to be pulled back together and remained as a united, mostly, political entity. And it recovered from that. Just because Pax Romana was the period of overall peace doesn't mean that it was in crisis all the rest of the Um, time. And Peter, you're slightly hypocritical because
0: the Mongol Empire existed existed solely through fighting and it collapsed after a fairly short period of time and then did some more fighting. So you're not in a place of strength
1: here. I would like to say two words. Pax Mongolica. <laughs> there are four Paxes in history.
3: Pax Romana, Pax Mongolia, Pax Britannica and Pax Americana. So, so far, you're using that where you've just... You've got this point which three of us can use. Yes. As I, <laughs> I said it. However, you can't take this
1: away from me. The Mongol Empire was incredibly successful at controlling its borders. So, 100 years, there was effective peace throughout from Carpathia to the Sea of Japan, from the Levant to Indochina, from Siberia to Iran, right? You could, you said a maiden could walk through from one end of the empire to another with a gold nugget on her head. I told you that. You did tell me that. And I'm using it as a good fact. <laughs> without being attacked. Um,
0: it was. I mean, that's a good point. But like I say, so Will was saying that the Romans had absolute peace. I was, so they were not fighting on their borders. And you're saying the Mongols had peace like that, but that's not true because they were always skirmishing around their frontiers and they were always fighting with China or in
1: the Balkans or with the Mamluks in Egypt, so it's not the same thing. I was trying to dispel the notion that you were suggesting that the Mongols only existed through fighting and all they did was fight. They were administrators to an extent, they were traders,
3: they were innovators. They're not just violent people what innovations did the mongols <laughs> do because i'm doing the british empire i can name quite a few innovations or go even, for it or even just bring western te- go, go te- for it. bring western technology to their land so india they brought lots of um infrastructure there like railways and they basically india like it's a developed country but I don't think without the British Empire, India would be as developed as it is, with them building all the original railways and roads and everything. Okay. And that's
1: also the Industrial Revolution. That's, 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 that's another so, thing so, that so, so what like,
0: So <laughs> the British Empire brought railways to India, the Mongols brought...
1: Ahem. Uh, um, research. <laughs> they, the Mongols, they allowed commerce between China and Europe. It was the greatest point of the Silk Road probably ever. Um, it allowed the dissemination of religion from one side to the other there was an Archbishop of Beijing during the time appointed by the Pope to set up a mission and you've in been reading in the Silk Road by Peter Frankopan haven't you? a bit <laughs> um, one of the most important things I would say was the fact that due to this like period of peace and stability um, Islamic like knowledge and technology and science astronomy and mathematics was allowed to spread into Europe and into the Mediterranean which without the Renaissance would never have started without like Islamic knowledge. So, or in terms of commerce as well, they had the ideas of like held banking and stuff. So you can okay. write like a debt on a piece of paper. But the main point set Mongols. up the banking system, which allowed Venice to thrive. Uh, and do you know which of the four empires here didn't
0: expand through conquest and military expansion. It would be Venice. That, surely surely that's a mark of success. A, a, a Repu- admittedly, a republic that can expand Diana. not through military force, not through the brute force used by nations for thousands of years up until this point, but simply bullied its way through the eastern Mediterranean by securing lavish trade deals and extraordinary tax exemptions rather than simply deploying thousands of troops. Yes, they didn't engage in military action, but by and large, it was simply sharp, cunning trade and very sneaky behind-the-back plans. So that's an
2: advantage to you guys. But does that make them more influential than powerful? If you take powerful as how much can say definition of powerful here, if we go on, maybe I'll just make one up on the spot how much like hard power does a country have? How much can they directly change events to suit their needs? And banking is more of a soft power you can influence an area quite easily through that but can you just if a country does something you don't want them to can you just stop them and with banking that's not necessarily the case because you often need military force well, yeah, to but back up your words
0: Venice was invested in I think I think banking is not, I think trade as a whole is what Venice focused on and I think they they had enough soft power to wield influence so they, they managed to persuade so the Byzantine. Byzantine Empire gave them incredible concessions for trade in Constantinople um, and then several kings later John II said nope we're not renewing these trade deals and the Venetians simply said well now nah, screw you you're going to renew the trade deals and he had to because Venetian power was so extraordinary and they threatened to burn the city and so he had to and it, we're talking Something like, you know, free pontoons, no import or export taxes whatsoever, communes within the city of Venice for their traders. And so I think it's a bit disparaging to say in Venice all they had was soft power, because all they did have was soft
2: power, but boy, they knew how to use it. But if an external force with a big army decided they wanted Venice? The Ottomans, Austria, Austria.
3: Austria. <laughs> off. Yeah, <laughs> powerful external forces which having a war didn't end very well for the Venetians.
0: Look, what I'm saying, right, is you guys need to give Venice a bit more credit. And I think, it, again, slight hypocrisy talking about warfare coming from an empire who hey, <laughs> maintained I've and financed my... the, the entire empire through warfare. And then it was warfare
3: in World War I and II that brought the British Empire down. Military, military might is a massive part of um, how powerful a country is. But in fact, the British Empire didn't have a very large army. Of the big empires at that time, they had a relatively small one, they had a smaller army than Russia, France, other countries. You in are Europe. avoiding
0: the point, which is that they had the biggest navy the world had ever seen yeah. for a hugely sustained yeah, sorry, period sorry, of time. Kind of, they
3: had a powerful navy because they're a powerful country, because they're the most powerful empire in history. <laughs> but you can't say oh no they they don't count they had a small army when no, they I'm had not... a massive navy yeah, no, that's not the my... mere threat of which would cause country to kowtow to Britain and let them in yeah I, I know you're arguing my point for me like I'm saying what I was going to go on to there was how they didn't need a massive army to be powerful which is kind of also proving what you're saying. However, on the topic of soft power and hard power I suppose, the British Empire had both. They had soft power in their economy. You know, they controlled the tea trade, they controlled other trade through uh, Canada. What was it, like seals and other kind of furs that was Mm -hmm, through Canada mm -hmm. until that kind of collapsed. Um, But, so they have that as well as they have the hard power to back it up. So they had the biggest navy in the world, as you were saying. And even though their army may not have been the largest at the time, it still... They didn't need it to be the lights at the time because so they had that navy, which, in an increasingly connected world, which during the Industrial Revolution the world was becoming more connected because you'd have people being able to travel across the world, that navy was what held, I'm not going to say held together the British Empire, but it was a massive staple of its power. I'd just like to interject. Um,
1: I think like the Venetian Empire or Venetian Republic and the British Empire are surprisingly similar as far as two, like like, things from such different time periods in such different places could be. Because for all intents and purposes, they're both thalassocracies right? They're both ruled by the sea. Big old boats, lots of boats, lots of trade. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I agree with Max. The, the British Empire didn't lose wars. <laughs> Venice
2: fought seven wars against the Ottomans and lost six of them. This is not a, good, not a good win rate. But who was the British Empire fighting at the time? Because while they were engaged with European powers, they spent a lot of time beating up people who were hundreds of years behind in technology. They
3: lost to the Zulus, who they... had ostrich feathers, for shields. <laughs> <Is> it... <laughs> Maybe, but well, um, I'm going to ignore that point because I don't know how to counter it. And I'm going go to go <laughs> back to what Will said about who were they fighting. Yes, they did spend a lot of time fighting You know, smaller countries, in, like smaller, less technologically advanced countries in India and... Uh, you know, Africa. What they did also fight big countries like Russia and France, you know, the Crimean War and the wars, the, you know, the the Revolutionary Wars, which although it took them seven tries to properly, you know, put that down, they still won that. They bankrolled the entire of the seven coalitions against Napoleon and they won the Crimean War. So they're not just fighting hillbillies in the countryside, they are fighting the big people in Europe. I
0: think that's a good point. Um, And I think... You're making quite strong case of the British Empire, but I'd like to narrow down a bit more on its relations with Europe, as you mentioned, and how they intervened. You mentioned the Crimean War, but it's interesting that, last post Napoleon, there was, it was intervened in no other wars in Europe. Not that there were many, but I think that is that's because Britain was very vulnerable to European influence, European interests. It's a few miles across the Channel from France, its a long-term enemy, and. It, it only main it only protects its position by playing these countries off against each other in a rather desperate isolationist game. They they knew their weaknesses, which was if two countries two European countries
2: had joined together, they could have invaded Britain fairly comfortably and fairly easily. I would have to sort of I'm actually gonna back max up on this one and oh. just say that while if they'd got troops on British soil, I think it would have happened, because the British mm. army was not strong enough to no. fight a the the navy. European the navy
3: power. is the backbone of the British Empire, and how, although, okay, the channel's not very wide, but that is, it's uh, good for attackers, it's also good for defenders, you don't need to defend a massive coastline if really the only place they're going to come at you is the English Channel, they're not going to go up the North Sea and attack you from that way, they're more likely going to go through the English Channel, which is relatively easy to defend and you've also got the advantage of the weather which although it's not technically the british empire um during the elizabethan times with the armadas um the weather massively helped the british empire uh, well not british empire it massively helped england you know they probably without that they would have lost and that was before they had a massive the strongest navy in the world so with the weather on their s- or on their side as much as weather can be yeah. but, but you've got that and you have the largest most powerful navy in the world you've got your borders secured
2: but that's like that's an advantage they would have had anyway. It doesn't matter who inhabits Britain. Hmm. they always have this advantage. whereas if you take it to the Romans um they often didn't like it would take what what would happen if um say France had got a hundred thousand men or okay maybe that's a bit higher number thirty thousand men on British soil. We may well have lost hmm. Britain may well have been crushed but Rome, for instance, didn't fall to this kind of threat. They, they had had this threat happen to them before, and they had survived it. For instance, in the Second Punic War, which was a dire time for Rome, um, there, there were two years which were particularly bad, from about the winter um, in uh, 218 BC to uh, August 216 BC. was a particularly de- disastrous time. During this time, they fought three major battles against Hannibal, who was in Italy at the time. Not far from Rome at all is was rampaging around And during the course of these three battles They lost between These are just estimates 123,000 men And 147,000 men Wow And this was in the space of two years And that's three to three and a half percent Of the Italian population at the time They lost that much In three days Over two years Yet at the same time In very Roman fashion They didn't lose the war they can lose every battle, and they very nearly did. Um, they lost them disastrously badly. I mean, in one day, they lost something around like 80,000 men. But they didn't lose the war, and they could come back from those defeats and just raise more legions and tactically and strategically outfight an enemy. And even someone who I think was a better general than any of the Roman generals, Hannibal, was defeated by Rome. And, well, he, he was defeated in battle once at yeah. the end... Before, didn't, he, didn't Hannibal end up getting to Rome, though? He never, he never sacked Rome, and Rome ah, was never siege. Okay,
3: this is oof, limits of my knowledge here.
2: And even during the time where Rome was directly under threat from a massive Carthaginian army, Rome never recalled any of their um, garrisons from outside of Italy. They were that confident, and they would just refused to give up, and people uh, would continue to fight Hannibal to the death, and they very nearly spent all of Italy doing that. I don't think you could point to... If if 30,000 French troops had landed in Britain and we had suffered a massive defeat where our entire army was essentially routed, I don't think Britain comes back from that. I don't think that's something we can come with. So would you say that's uh,
3: the ability of Rome, because, yeah, they did. They lost a lot of battles, but they didn't lose. They'd lose a lot of battles, but they'd win the war. So would you say that's a cultural thing of Rome, that they just didn't give up, or is it an economic thing
2: that they could afford to keep going? I think it's a mixture of the two, but I think the cultural thing would is one of the main things, because the way the system worked bred ambitious and sort of cunning and cutthroat people.
0: But often to their detriment, because you can say what you like about Rome, Roman military success but you can't deny they had a succession of terrible leaders and terrible men who were in charge of the Roman Empire who bred disturbance who bred anxiety and revolt and violence and so you can talk about the Pax Romana but I think you've also got to look at the fact that a lot of the time it came quite close to death and it came quite close to dissolution and it took maybe luck or maybe accidents or maybe someone managing to pull going back from the brink and that doesn't necessarily give volumes of a strong and stable empire as Theresa May would like to call it <laughs> um, so surely great they, they can win the war without and lose lots of the battles but what happens in peace if you don't have a good succession of rulers that doesn't, does that not say a lot about what your your society and your culture?
2: Well, I think you can split Rome into two parts. The first is the Republic, the system rules rather than great people. And while that eventually the great people eventually tore the system down and built the Empire, which was run more by great people than by systems, um, in my opinion, I think the first part is not entirely like that. But whereas I would agree with you, the Empire is like that. Fortunately, there were enough usually competent rulers that things. Eventually, would turn out okay. Generally, however, if you'd like to think of the Mongol Empire, what happened when they ran out of great men? Um, they had Genghis
0: Khan, the Great Khan, and then oh no, wait, no, that no was one. it. <laughs> they had they two, have, two, two great, great leaders. <laughs>
1: I was about to jump into your defence there. I was about to say, well, you can, surely this Rome, you know, had suffered several bad leaders but still continued to exist as a political force and that's for how great the empire was. I am not even going to say that point now. Um, so you're saying there weren't that many great Khans.
3: I would disagree here. 100% of the Khans were great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have no bad leaders if your empire dissolves after four. the good ones die. There were four... Solid leaders. For, didn't one of them die like 12 years into his reign?
1: Oh, no, they didn't rule for very long, if I'm honest. Like, uh, Gayun Khan, two
3: years. Um, how, how did he die? Uh, Gayun Khan was the third great Khan of the Mongol Empire. He died while well, this Wikipedia page is loading. <laughs> 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 he was killed in a vi- violent brawl with Shiban, <laughs> who is the prince of the early golden horde. So, so uh, a family yes. basically. Mongol
0: yeah. peace and succession administration. But, um, he, he was killed hand. after two years. Good thing there were no factions at court. Oh, wait.
1: I would like to point out, Pax, Mon- like, Pax Mongolia um, existed not during the reign of the Great Khans. So Genghis Khan and Odigai Khan, his, like, successor, they didn't have Pax Mongolica. That was, like, from Gaiuk to, like, Temur. And even though Temer wasn't really in charge, he was, it was still a time of incredible peace. And I would also say, you say there weren't many like, Khan leaders. I would say there were more leaders of Khans, including successor states, than any of your empires by an insanely long margin is that a good thing if uh,
3: if a large <laughs> empire
2: splits into a million different pieces each with their own ruler what did these
3: empires ma- do after it dissolved cuz if you look at the british empire i wouldn't say well, okay it it's didn't dissolve but it definitely split off parts so india split off you know the commonwealth so you have got australia you have got canada oh, those what? countries have become strong and independent nations on mm. like un, you know and have good relations There's with they're strong independent America. nations that
0: don't need no britain
3: Exactly. You've got so, Canada and Australia. They have two of the highest living standards in the world, so compared to what countries came out of the Mongol Empire. So after Mongolia split up, yeah, Mongol Empire
1: split up, it split into four like sort of khan's. There's yeah. Yuan, which is China. You can't disagree that that wasn't isn't a successful nation. Uh, then there was the Ilkhanate, which is in the southwest. There was the Chagatai Khanate, which is over somewhere. And then there was the Golden Horde. Yeah. Um, and then, so, if you take the Golden Horde, for example. The Golden Horde split up into more Carnates. Uh, so, the biggest one was the Great
3: Horde. Yeah, really selling your point here. And, and then the Great, Great strong
1: Horde nation. split into more Carnates. Some of which the Carnates, the Great Horde split into, split into even more ones. <laughs> so, think of the amount of leaders who can trace their lineage and who can trace their system of
3: government back. How many of these new states survived past let's say, one or two leaders, like as in, managed to survive for any um, recognisable length, length of time. Can you name any of these other states? I can, because I've written them down here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um,
1: there's a couple here, some quite long-lasting like, long ones. There's yeah. the Crimean Khanate, which admittedly was under Ottoman protection, but that was a Khanate which matters. lasted until 1783. After, was that... When did Venice fall...
0: Uh, later than 1783. What year? I don't actually know, I didn't get that far. I just (laughs) focus on the good bits. And then um, Bukhara, that fell in
1: 1785. Uh, It fell in 1797. And then the Kazakh Khanate, when did that end? 1848. So, this started, so Genghis Khan, he founded the empire uh, 1206. Um, And then the last successor state of a successor state, of probably a successor state, ended in... um, 1848. This is. It's not as long, like, as long lived as the Roman Empire, but it is longer lived than the Venetians, probably. It's definitely longer lived than the British Empire. No, it's not,
0: because because you're saying that the Mongol Empire existed in various forms other than the Mongol Empire. Yeah. By which you can say, so when was Britannia formed? Just after the Romans. Yeah. Just yeah the just after and just after when, it, when it did Britain fall? Um, Wait, it ha- hasn't. It hasn't happened yet. And when did Venice start? Ooh, just after the turn of the Hun. And when did Venice fall? No, it's still a city in northern Italy.
1: But the system of government, it may, they may not be the exact same state, but as a system of government, as a model of like, administration, it was relatively unchanged. It may have changed religion, they may have gone from shamanism to Islam, they may have changed some things, they may have modernised slowly, but for all intents and purposes, it was a, an, an incredibly similar way of governing that uh, Genghis has had. That's true. I'd like to track back quite a
0: long way to the Pact Mongolica, um, because I had a point and I forgot it, and now I've got it. But my main point is: so you're saying they have peace post Ogadai Khan, post um, Genghis. I'm going to say, well, that I think the only case for that is because Ogadai and Genghis destroyed basically all of the armies anywhere in the world that could threaten
1: the Khanate. The Roman way. <laughs> <laughs> but unlike the Romans, is where you said the Romans they lost every battle but won the war the Mongolians won every battle and won the war in devastating fashion. No, they didn't.
0: Battle of Ayn against the Mamluks of Egypt routed using the Mongols' own tactics
1: against them. And that was a battle where Christians and Muslims teamed up to help each other <laughs> because they're like, oh damn, we're being crushed here. Um, I don't think it was. I think it was just... Egyptian no, no, no. The, um, the Christian city of Accra, they let the Mongols... Re- no, not the Mongols. They let the um, Mamluks resupply. And like get rest and stuff before the battle. So what you're saying is you're saying that it's not fair that Christians no, 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 and Muslims
0: saying. teamed up to defeat what was at the time the largest empire on earth. And it's darn it,
1: almost they would have lost. The Mongols did suffer some other defeats, but almost instantly after the defeat happened, they would come back with overwhelming force. And then they got
0: beaten by the again and again and again, and then they crushed. Them. No. It did take quite a lot of battles. No, but it didn't push the Mongols,
1: because they had to go into a succession crisis and the country was falling apart. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Strong and stable.
2: And, and also, uh, Will, were you going to come Well, I was just thinking, if what happened to the Romans happened to uh, the Mongols, would they have survived it? If they had lost their army at the time, three times in a row in two years, do they survive?
1: No. I do not believe they do. They survived by killing everyone... And if they didn't kill everyone because they were all dead, then they wouldn't have survived.
2: So they relied on the momentum of winning and continuing yes, to right, win, which is unsustainable. In and the only run.
0: reason they stopped, they, they stopped having to fight battles, was because the European nations were too incompetent to ra- raise another army against the Mongols. So was it more the European mistakes rather than Mongol success that came to the, the pact Mongol kids, I'm sensing. It, I, I feel like I can pursue. This because I still don't think it was reliant on the Mongols. I think it was simply they got lucky, and other states were in too much in, incompetent or in disrepair, in too much of disrepair to mount an army to threaten the Pax Mongolica.
1: That doesn't say anything against the Mongols here. That's just saying at the time, other than they they took out literally every possible contending power. They took out like the and Rus. They took out uh, China. Um, they sort of like they scared the northern Indian states into submission. They essentially eradicated
2: every single competitor in Asia and Europe. Okay, okay, fair enough. How many of those competitors were comparable to them at the time that they fought them?
1: Well, in terms of numbers and technology? Yes.
2: In terms of technology, they were probably
1: behind. Like, the Mongols were probably behind, I'm saying. They had lots of horses, they had lots of bows, They didn't have a lot of anything else. Uh, In terms of numbers, it was probably fairly similar I mean, the Mongols would obviously be outnumbered by the Han Chinese, there's no way they can't be. And this is a bunch of tribesmen from northeastern Asia who have marched to Syria, or like, marched to Hungary, to fight some people. It's like, I think, they don't have the home, like, side advantage. We probably don't have that many people, to be honest. No, but wouldn't
0: they have, once it's... Sorry, sorry we're going on about the Mongols here, but we, we, f- we feel like we can push this home. So Genghis Khan, a remarkable leader, brilliant um, strategian, strategian? strategist, yeah. um, so he was able to create something out of nothing and give his son a remarkably large empire. It, it wasn't fully, really, as many people believe, it wasn't actually fully really expanded by this time. It was Ogadai who made it the massive creation it was. But once the size that Genghis Khan made it to, at that point, was it not self-sufficient and on and, and repeated part of expansion? The more towns they took over, the more people they had to raid, the more people they had to raid, the more towns they could take over, the more people they had to raid, and so on. They just got more soldiers because of, didn't, of how big they were. So expansion begat expansion. Therefore, it wasn't necessarily Ogadai who actually did a huge amount. He simply relied on his father's successes, to fuel his own and so we come back to the idea was it wasn't just all Genghis one man and that doesn't make an empire no
1: you could say this is similar like with Alexander the Great Philip of Macedonia gave Alexander the Great an em- like a country gave him Greece he gave him an army and he gave him the best army in the world he gave him the time. best army in the world at the time and then Alexander the Great steamrolled and created a
3: massive army massive i a massive empire and it collapsed when he died which is why no one's arguing that it's the greatest empire because yeah, if it doesn't last long like the Mongols I wouldn't say it can be the Kazakh Khanate it's a existed. different <laughs> it's a different country 1848 is, that is not on its own that it's the, the individual you know split of countries they weren't powerful in their own right so I don't no. think you can argue. Like, I think arguing that they're part of the Mongol Empire, you are weakening your own argument. I think. let's move on. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, think we've torn the Mongol Empire to shreds yeah. here. It proved
0: remarkably resilient. Um, so fair enough. Yeah. And credit to Peter. Well, I unlike think, in real life. Unlike yeah, <laughs> <here. laughs> yeah.
3: I think the Venetian Empire has got off quite uh, uns- relatively unscathed I was hoping so no far. I hope you know one am
0: bringing that. I I I I'm seeing how badly moved you guys were. I didn't want to bring up Venice because I'm I'm now quite void. Uh, basically, so my, my argument is simply Venice, an empire is conventionally one, uh, a, a series of nation states unified by an emperor or an empress, more than usually. Um, but I'm saying Venice was an empire in an unorthodox sense, in the fact that it was an empire simply because it, by dint of the fact it wielded huge influence, even if the amount of territory it held was small, effectively a few islands in East the eastern Mediterranean, a few trading ports down the Dalmatian coast. But that the influence and the power it, it, it had was so vast that it counted as an empire in Europe at the time because it could hold its own with more classical empires and more classical nation states. So I think it's unfair to just dismiss it as some petty little city-state or some petty little republic when it had huge leverage, especially in the Crusades, and it had huge leverage against uh, Hungary and the Ottoman Empire the Byzantine Empire, because of its clever, because of its guile, because of its cunning, um, which it resorted to because it knew
1: it couldn't field uh, a standing army. Okay, you make a
3: good point here, but did or did not the leader of Venice have a silly hat? <laughs> <laughs> and on a on a serious topic, like, you're saying that it had, yes, its economic power, had a lot of diplomatic and influence throughout Europe, but... What we, what we said earlier about um, how it could back it up and you said that there are a couple of instances where they did back it up but there's not a regular it's not like a regular thing of them exerting this influence strongly over others unlike the British Empire which had a massive uh, of influence the Empire, I am because I want to win um, <laughs> yeah the British Empire you I want to win the opinion I want to win the opinion it, yeah. so the British Empire had masses of influence like it's um, it brought British culture to its to the colonies, which you can argue British culture we not it's not very good culture <laughs> <laughs> fish and chips walking day, but it did kind of relatively unite this area. No. So it unites it in a sense of language. It's incorporated that culture into itself, which by the ease of uh, navigation or sort of ease of transportation through the British Empire, you got cultures from India and China. You got that coming to England to create a very diverse but the
0: whole point I'm making is that Venice is not a conventional empire. I don't think you can judge it by normal standards. I'm still saying it's an empire not in the normal dictionary definition, but because it had the same symptoms and the same identifications of an empire. It had huge influence in its local area and the world. It wielded huge soft power and necessary and military power in times of emergency. Okay, it knew its own capabilities, was able to play off allies against each other, as well as keep the peace in its own city. Um, it had a highly educated, highly skilled workforce as well. And yes, it was a republic, but I think that's ignoring the point. that It, it represented much of what a British or Mongol or Roman Empire would represent.
1: Um, just out of interest, how many people speak Venetian today? What's Venice's impact on... Because more people know Latin than Venetian, I'm willing to bet. Is Venetian its own language? Venetian is its own language, it's still
3: spoken. Um, by how, oh, by yeah. how many people? It seems like you know. Not many. <laughs> 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 <We, laughs> if like, you're so talking about language speaking, English, second most spoken language in the world. Probably the most, if you take into account, second language. I, I, is,
0: but I mean, amongst the amalgamation of Balkan languages, because it's near the Balkans, and Italian and Latin languages... I think it's quite
2: easy for it to. Oh, I was just going to say the uh, Venetian language is spoken by four million people. Apparently, that's more than I yeah. expected. To be fair, so
0: that's quite a lot of people. <laughs>
1: However, I would say four million schoolchildren have had to learn Latin in the UK alone. You know, so, no one get. We don't have to sit down and learn like have Venetian lessons, <laughs> but many people have to learn how to conjugate mat "amata," "man," like in Latin. Like, I would say Venice's influence on the modern world is much less, like, less than the Romans. Much, much less than the British. What language did the Mongols speak?
3: I believe Mongolian <laughs> or what, some form of <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um Matt, can you just look up the population of Mongolia? Oh, I'm, I'm searching how many people speak Mongolian. So, which actually will be about the population of Mongolia. It says 10 million people. 10 million, that's, that's respectable. About. And
0: it had an empire probably about 500 times the size of the Venetian Empire. So I think that's... The math adds up to put Venice in the ascendancy there. Because Venice, like I say, it had a small, geographically small empire, but an outsized impact on the world. And so 4 million people still speaking Venetian is amazing.
3: Like, You've got to think the land that Venice used to... Ha- the, the land that incorporates old... The modern-day Venice, I suppose, would be much more populous than the land which is currently Mongolia. So Venice has the advantage of being in a very urban, I suppose, sort of area of the world, in the, area of the world, rather than the Asian steppe, where there's obviously not going to be very many people. That's if, true. If okay, we do it, let's take, you know, imagination that the people who speak in Venetian are probably Italian, right? Yeah. So I yeah. reckon that four million people is a smaller percent of the Italian population than the people who speak Mongolian are a percent of the Mongolian population.
0: Yeah. No, <laughs> okay,
3: but... I-
0: but I, I still we, think that's to miss the point to talk about language as yeah. no, no. an influence. <laughs> if we're talking
3: about language, um, 1.5 billion people speak English and only 360 <laughs> million of them it's their first language. And that shows that English, which would have been spread... Okay, there's America, which probably also spread it. But let's say the main spreader of English as a language would be in, um, the British Empire and how that legacy of the importance of Britain as a financial or ally in general has led to English still being such an important language today. And that is the legacy of the British Empire surviving almost, let's say, about 100 years
2: since it fell, Are you doing sh- bunny-like-the-ears things now. But If we're talking about sort of cultural impact, I agree that the British Empire has had probably the biggest cultural impact. However, I think that's offset because it's so modern, so recent. Mm. If we think to the Roman Empire, I mean when America was founded some sort of 1,300 years since the Western Roman Empire fell, America was founded somewhat on the principles and somewhat in the image of the Roman Republic. And that is astounding, the fact that it had such a large impact that 1,300 years later, people are still looking to it as a form of government that they would like to have. They
0: actually debated having ancient Greek as their as a language of governance because that's how much he looked back to the classical tradition. And also a thought just occurred to me, Max, in the heart of hearts do you really think it was the British Empire that made English the business language of the world? Because what came after the British Empire was it the Americans because <laughs> right. I think it was the Americans <laughs> Ab- and I think it was the Americans Ab- that made but... English a business language and not simply a, a local tribal language like French is in much of Africa.
3: If we're going off what Peter says... The American, you can say that's an offset of the British Empire, therefore, <laughs> following Peter's arguments, that just makes the British Empire even stronger.
0: Oh, I suppose it does. I suppose it does.
3: I think it can be easily
1: argued that almost every single European Empire after the Roman Empire has attempted to be the Roman Empire. Yeah. Like the yeah. amount of Latin quotes you see or yeah. people going, Rex Dominicus, blah, 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 blah. blah. Yeah. You know.
0: So I think moving on, point to think about would you count more recently Cold War? Would you count the USA an empire? Would you count the USSR an empire? So post US-Spanish War, America took Hawaii as its 50th state. It had it um, was in charge of Guam. It was in charge of the Philippines, Cuba. Um, it had troops in Panama, in Mexico. Um, isn't that traits of an empire? And the USSR didn't it simply replace the Russian empire. It was just an empire under a different
3: name, under a different set of principles. Yeah, I would 100% argue that they are empires. They had an influence that they were trying to exert upon the world. They were trying to spread their beliefs, their governance system throughout the world, and they were expanding their territory to do it. For example, you know, Russia, um, the USSR, gaining more territory in Eastern Europe and Central Asia is a prime example of this.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, Just because maybe they're not overtly seen as empires doesn't make them any less like an empire if you look in terms of influence and power. I think now, well, in the last, say, 50 years, it's been a lot more soft power, as we see things like proxy wars, trade wars, all of that. It's no longer about, well, it's no longer just about who can put the most men on the field, because that is a situation that we have yet to have between two major powers. And I also think...
3: That pure army size has become redundant with the invention of nuclear weapons. That mm. it doesn't matter how big your army is; it's your technology. Because now one man with a button
2: can beat a hundred thousand men with one as nuclear as weapon. As, as, long long as, as, as long as your, as your button you... is bit bigger than the other guy's button. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think nuclear weapons do change everything in a way yeah. that you. While yeah. I still think they are sort of empires in some sense, you can't really compare. No. Any of the modern empires, as it were, to any of the. Historical ones simply because they the situation is so different, the times they live in is so different, and when you live in a world where every one of these major nations could feasibly completely eradicate one of the other ones in an afternoon, without getting any response back at all, just makes it so difficult to look at sort of comparing them. There's no longer these titanic struggles that last decades on the field of battle it's now things like trading rights and mm. how much influence they can get how they can get their bankers uh, more powerful in that country which kind of makes it tied to Venice in a way I think Venice was maybe a bit before its time but that model is now the m- traditional sort of main model for modern empires in so- many many ways
0: Peter any last words of wisdom? there's still not a Pax Venetia <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's quickly go around. Summarize points.
2: Will Roman Empire most powerful empire in history? Why? Uh, they had staying power. They could lose every battle, still win the war, and they lasted for an incredibly long time. Peter, Mongol Empire. Literally lost one battle in the entire history, and there's like a gazillion
1: successive states that lasted for a long time.
3: Max, British Empire. Um, I'd say the it's pure science, biggest empire in the world as well as its spread of technology and culture throughout the developing world at the time.
0: And Venetian Empire, uh, because they worked out how to use soft power and trading to their advantage to dominate other nations. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Theo, Peter, Will and Matt. We hope you like the podcast. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at poorly discussion at gmail.com. So send in any comments or feedback. We'd really appreciate hearing from you. Get in touch with us on Twitter at the Poorly Informed Podcast or check out our website with a little bit of information about each of us as well as what Poorly Informed is. That's poorlyinformedpodcast.wordpress.com. But thank you very much for listening. Really appreciate it. And see you next time. Hear you next time. Are you sitting on my book? Yeah, I am. That's quite I... a nice book. In fact, it's <laughs> not even my book. You just, well, want, to, you just we... want to look a bit taller. That's the problem. That's it's the the Five foot one. <laughs> you do you need a moment, Peter? <laughs> that was quite a surprise attack from you. You
1: just jumped at me there. Um... Yeah,
3: Matt. do you want to just up? You? What's his name? Uh, Gayouk. Oh, Jesus. Good luck spelling that. I tried. Some umlaus there.
0: Try Gayouk. Try Ayush with G in front of it.